All right, well, last week we started looking at Luke chapter 5, and we noted that in this chapter, Luke, uh, not Luke, Jesus encounters four different individuals. And with each individual, Jesus asks that individual to trust in him with the situation that they're facing. And we've noted that as those individuals place their trust in Jesus, we see the great difference that Jesus makes in their life. Last week, we saw the first two individuals that Jesus encounters here in chapter 5. First, uh, Jesus encountered Peter. And Jesus asked Peter to do something that Peter would never normally do. Peter was a fisherman, and Jesus asked Peter to fish at the wrong time of day, in the wrong depth of water. And after Peter was done fishing, he spent all night fishing, he caught nothing, and that's when Jesus asked him to do it. And Peter kind of just first starts with this, oh, we fished all night, we caught nothing, but he finishes with, nevertheless... At your word, I'll do it. Nevertheless, Jesus, I'm going to trust in you, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And we see that he catches this great, miraculous catch of fish. But even more significantly, it's that point in time that Jesus says, you know what, Peter, you're no longer going to be a fisher of fish. Now I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so that encounter definitely transformed and did a great work in Peter's life. And the second uh, person that Jesus encountered there was a man full of leprosy. And this man comes to Jesus, recognizing that Jesus had has power to heal, asked Jesus to heal him of his leprosy, and the man was completely healed by Jesus. So those are the first two people in this chapter that chose to trust in Jesus with their circumstances and found the great uh, ministry and power that Jesus has to make a great difference in their life. Now this morning we're going to look at the final two people that Jesus has an encounter with here in chapter 5 of Luke, uh, and we're going to see what transpires as they place their trust in Him with the circumstances that they are facing. So let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 17. It says this, Now it happened on a certain day as He was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So Jesus has had big crowds now for a while that have been following him. He's been healing people. He's been teaching. But now Luke reveals that there's a new group of people that's on the scene, a new group of people that has come to check Jesus out. We're told that Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they came out of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem to come up to where Jesus was to see him. Now, if you notice here on our map of Israel, uh, Galilee up there in the north is a region. Judea down in the south is a region. Uh, they're about 100 miles between the two of them. And Jerusalem is the major city in Israel, the one that had the most people. But the most significant part of Jerusalem, it has the temple. Now, we're told that this new group of people that came to see Jesus were the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. These were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And most of them lived in Jerusalem because they wanted to be close to the temple, kind of the, the hub of Judaism at that time. So many of these Pharisees and teachers would have traveled about 100 miles, most likely on foot, to see Jesus. Now, I find it interesting that now's the time that they decide to do this because we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke that word has spread all the way down to Judea about Jesus' power to heal, about Him teaching, about these things. But yet, we didn't see the religious leaders coming until this point in time. And I think the reason why now they've made this choice is if you remember, the last person that we looked at last week was this leper. 
And once Jesus heals this leper, he says, don't tell anyone except for a certain group of people. I want you to go to the temple. I want you to tell the priest that you've been healed of your leprosy. And then I want you to make the sacrifices that the law commands if God were to heal someone of leprosy. Remember, leprosy was something that man could not cure. It was only something that God could heal. And so if God chose to do that within the law, there were certain sacrifices that you would offer to God for healing you of that. And so Jesus says to this leper, go to the temple, tell the priest what I've done, and offer these sacrifices. I think that was the big turning point for these religious leaders there in Jerusalem. This guy who was full of leprosy comes and tells them, I've been healed by Jesus Christ. I've come to sacrifice before the Lord who has taken care of me. And all of a sudden, I think now is this point where they're like, you know, we need to go and check this Jesus out. We need to go and find out what's going on. And so many of them make this very long journey up to where Jesus is at. And now there's this big crowd of people. There's always been a big crowd, but within this crowd, we now have the religious leaders as well. And let's see what happens. Verse 18. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So we just noted that there was a man who had a huge need. He was a leper, and he is able personally to come to Jesus and ask to be cleansed. Well, now we come to the next individual, and he's just as needy. He's a man who's paralyzed. But because he's paralyzed, he can't get himself to Jesus. He might recognize that Jesus has the power to heal. He might want that healing, but he has no capacity in and of himself to get to Jesus because he's paralyzed. But fortunately for this man, he's got some good, godly friends who are willing to bring him to Jesus. We're told some men brought this paralyzed man on a bed to the house where Jesus was at in order to lay the paralyzed man before Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Mark also records this story for us, and it tells us that there were four men who were friends of this paralyzed man who brought him to Jesus. And when they get to the house where Jesus was, they find this huge crowd. Uh, So Jesus is in the house. The house is mobbed with people, probably surrounded with people. And so now they have a problem. All right, we're trying to get this friend of ours to Jesus, but we have this barrier of all these people that are keeping us from him. So they come up with a plan. They decide to go up on the roof of the house, tear a hole in the roof, and lower their friend down so he can get to Jesus. I think these four men are a wonderful example of how to be a godly friend. See, the reality for those of us who are Christians is the best thing that we can do for friends of ours when they have needs are bring them to Jesus. Because Jesus can meet any need. So whatever the need is, whatever the issue is, whatever the circumstance they're going through, the best thing that we can do as believers in Christ is to bring that person to Jesus in order for Him to meet their need. Now, I want us to know three things about these godly friends. uh, And I want us to think about these three things because if we truly want to be godly friends ourselves, which hopefully we do, I think these are three things that we need to have as well. The first thing that we see that these four friends of this paralyzed man had was they had desire. These guys had a great desire to bring their friend to Jesus so that he could be healed. Their friend was in an awful situation and they recognized the only one who can take care of our friend is Jesus 
Christ. You know, I think this thing starts with a desire, a desire to see a certain person that you love be brought to Jesus. Maybe it's for healing like with this man. Maybe it's for salvation. Maybe it's for strength. Maybe it's for peace. Maybe it's for comfort. You know, whatever it may be, you know the need that's in this person's life and you recognize, you know what, I have a desire to bring that person to Jesus, the one who can meet their need. And that is what we see what these four guys do. They have this desire to get their paralyzed friends to Jesus. But we got to be careful to recognize it can't just stop with desire. Because I think most Christians have that desire within them. They recognize the needs around them. They know that the solution is Jesus Christ and they have this desire to bring people to Jesus. But sometimes that's as far as it goes. Second, these friends had dedication. You see, their desire was more than just a feeling. It was also an action. They didn't just say, oh, I really desire to bring my friend to Jesus and then never do anything about it. Desire without dedication doesn't really produce much. You know, I think a great example of this is, you know, at the beginning of every year, people have a desire to lose weight and get in shape. Every year, thousands of people make a New Year's resolution to lose weight and to get in shape. Anybody here have ever made that resolution? I've made it many times, but for many people, the desire, it's there. They want to lose weight. They want to get in shape. The thing that's missing is the dedication. They'll go sign up for the gym, but they'll never go. They might even buy you know, some kind of piece of workout equipment and put it in their garage and it just collects dust. Or they might even get a plan of the healthy food that they're going to eat, but they never follow through with it. So the desire's there. They want to lose weight. They want to get in shape, but there's not much action that's placed with it. At the beginning of this year, I definitely had a desire (coughs) to lose weight and get in shape. But as you can see, the dedication wasn't there for me either. So, um, you know, desire without dedication doesn't produce much. And I think that's the, the thing that we need to recognize from a spiritual standpoint is when we desire to bring people to Jesus, it's got to be more than that. It's got to, okay, there's got to be action that's placed to that. We have to move to the stage of dedication, So these four friends of the paralyzed man, they had more than just desire. They also had dedication. They went to their friend. They physically carried their friend to where Jesus was. You know, and I think that's sometimes what we need to do to be a godly friend. We sometimes need to physically go pick people up. Physically go to them. Physically say, you know what, I'll be there for you. I'm going to help you. You're in the hospital. I'm going to visit you. You need to ride to church. I'm going to bring you. Whatever it is. Sometimes, you know, there's more than just praying. Uh, There's action that we do of, you know, I will come and help you. Just like these men said, you know what, we're going to come. Not just, hey, you know what, we hope that Jesus comes to your house and heals you. No, we'll pick you up and we'll bring you to the house that Jesus is in so that he can touch your life. So these men had desire. They had dedication. But you know what? Sometimes that's still not enough either. Third, they also had determination. You see, the desire and the dedication got them to bring their friend to the house where Jesus was. But all of a sudden, when they get to this house, they got a problem. They can't actually get to Jesus. There's this barrier. There's this huge crowd of people keeping them from getting to Jesus. All these people want to get to Jesus. And so they're kind of on the outskirts of this. And and now this determination needs to kick in because they could have easily said, you know, man, we just carried you for miles. We got here. We did our part. Unfortunately, there's this huge barrier. There's this huge crowd. We can't get to Jesus. Sorry. You know, we're just going to have to take you back home. You know, maybe Jesus will come to your town. Maybe Jesus will come to your house. You know, sorry. You know, we got this 
this thing keeping us from him, there's nothing we can do. You know, they could have given up at that point. They could have said, you know, we, we, we had the desire, we had the dedication, we got you here, but unfortunately, there's still another barrier we didn't foresee, and now we're giving up. And that often happens with people, but notice that's not what these guys do. They see this problem, and instead of giving up, there's this determination of, you know what, we're going to do whatever we have to do to get our friend to Jesus. Now, I want you to try to picture this scene because I think sometimes we read through this quickly and we don't really think of the fact this is a pretty crazy event that Luke records here because these guys get to this crowd. They get to this person's house, obviously not their house. We have no inkling to know that it was anything but a stranger's house to them. They show up. And they can't get to Jesus, and you know they're probably thinking, how in the world are we going to get our paralyzed friend in there? And all of a sudden, some guy looks up at the roof, gets an idea. Hey, you know, guys, we could climb up on the roof and, and rip a hole in it, and then we could lower our friend down there. You know, should we? Okay, let's go for it. You know, they all come up with, let's do it. Let's let's do this plan. Now, I want you to understand that homes in that day were a little different than the homes that we have today. They looked something like this. Actually, if you go to Israel today, you'll still see homes that have very flat roofs. Uh, They use their roofs more as like a deck. Uh, And so at that time, most of those roofs were either tile or they could have been even, you know, kind of uh, just some wood and straw and things, not as sturdy. But these men, you know, and with all the roofs, they would have had access points of stairways or ladders uh, to get up there because they use them as a deck. So these men carry their friend up to the the top of the roof. They, They tear a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down to Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about what's transpiring here because what they're doing is quite difficult. I'm pretty confident that these guys didn't bring tools with them to tear up someone's roof. You know, before they leave, they, they get the paralyzed man. I'm sure they're not like, you know what, let's make sure we got everything. Do we got water for the journey? Check. We got food for the journey? Check. We got tools to rip up someone's roof? Check. Okay, we're good. I mean, that's not something that I'm sure that they were bringing. So as they're there, they're most likely pulling up all this stuff by their bare hands. And so this would have been something that was difficult. But yet we see, you know what, these guys were determined. They weren't going to let anything keep them from getting their friend to Jesus. But something else, this was very unorthodox. It wasn't normal to go rip up a stranger's roof. Uh, you know, this wasn't something that people normally did. And so the fact that this is happening you know, is something unorthodox. But that didn't keep them from, you know, well, you don't rip up someone's roof. We can't do that. So you know what? We're determined. We're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. And it's also costly. They're going to have to pay for this roof when they're done. You know, they've made a huge hole. They're going to be liable for that uh, hole. And so, you know, but that didn't sway them either because they're determined to get their friend to Jesus. These men were willing to do whatever it took to make sure their friend got to Jesus. No barrier was going to stop them. You know, when I was in high school, I was, uh, for the majority of my high school years, a backslidden Christian. I was definitely wasn't a godly friend like this at all. I had a lot of friends who were non-Christians, friends that I knew needed Jesus, friends that I knew needed to hear about Jesus. And, and many times there was a desire within me to share about Jesus, to tell them about what Jesus has done for them. But unfortunately for me, that's all it was. It was just a desire that never led to any action. 
I didn't have the dedication. I didn't have the determination to actually share with them, to bring them to Jesus. And, and, you know, there were barriers that were problematic for me. You know, one of the big barriers was fear. You know, well, if I do tell my friends about Jesus, you know, I had this fear of, well, what are they going to think about me? How are they going to respond with that? You know, I'm going to be viewed as quite a hypocrite because I'm not living for Jesus myself. And so to talk about that, you know, seems quite hypocritical. And, you know, is that friendship going to end? You know, they're going to reject me. Uh, And so there was those fears. And another barrier I faced really was just a, a lack of love. I didn't love my friends enough to share Christ with them. Ultimately, I didn't love Christ enough to share people, uh, share about him with people. And, uh, and so those were, were barriers for me. And, and when I encountered those barriers, I didn't do whatever it took to get through them. Instead, I just gave up because I wasn't determined to get my friends to Jesus. But my senior year of high school, God really got a hold of my life. There was a big change in my life. I went from someone who wasn't living for him to someone who was. And that desire then once again came back. I have all these unsaved friends and there was a desire to bring them to Jesus. But instead of like before, where it was just a desire that I didn't do anything with, now it was, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell each one of them about the Lord. And some did respond, as I thought, where you know, that relationship ended. They didn't want to hear those things. And others, I was quite surprised, were quite open to hearing about Jesus. And so you know, the desire, the dedication, and the determination all was there at the latter part of my high school experience. But these four men here are a great example to us of desire, dedication, and determination that we need to bring others to Jesus. These men didn't just have a desire to bring their friend to Jesus and stop with that and move to dedication. But even beyond that, when the barriers came, they were determined to get through them in order to get their friend to Jesus. I think they're a great example to us and what we need to do to be godly friends. So now they've lowered their friend down through this person's roof. There's Jesus in front of them. Let's see how Jesus responds to this situation. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, speaking of the faith of these four friends, he said to the paralyzed man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? What is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Jesus sees these four men who go out of their way to get this paralyzed friend to him. They climb up on someone's roof. They rip a hole into it. They lower their friend down. And notice Jesus is really blessed by their faith. They had amazing faith and trust that, you know what, Jesus is the answer to our friend's problem. He's paralyzed. Jesus can heal him. And we have enough faith that we're willing to destroy someone's roof, lower our friend down in order for Jesus to be able to heal him. You know, Jesus loves it when our faith is shown in our action. You know, as Christians, we so often use that term, we have faith, and we say it all the time. But, you know, is there action to back it up? Do we demonstrate that faith with the way in which we live our lives? These four friends definitely did. But, you know, Jesus says something very surprising. Here's this paralyzed man. He's lowered down in front of Jesus. And I'm sure everyone in the crowd, the four friends, all are expecting Jesus to say, 
you're healed. I mean, that's what we've been seeing Jesus do all through the last couple chapters of Luke. We get these crowds of people brought to him, and he's healing this person, healing this person, healing this person. Obviously, they brought this paralyzed man for a purpose, to heal him. But notice what Jesus says. Instead of saying, you're healed, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And right when he says that, remember the religious leaders, this new crowd that is there, they hear Jesus say that, and they say to themselves, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the thought of these religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, it wasn't a wrong thought. The only person who can forgive sins is God. So, you know, the thought that who can forgive sins but God alone was a true thought. Their problem was they didn't recognize that God was right there in their midst in Jesus Christ. And so they're thinking, who is this person who speaks blasphemies? Who is this person claiming to be God because only God can forgive sins? Now, they weren't saying that out loud. Jesus perceives what they're thinking. And notice what he says to them. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. Now, the reality is, it's a lot easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven you. The reason it's easier to say that is because there's no way to prove if what I said actually happened. The only way you're going to know if your sins are forgiven or not is when you stand before God after you die on Judgment Day and find out if your sins were really forgiven or not. So Jesus is saying, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? I can say that, but you have no proof that it's true. Or, what's easier to say? Rise up and walk. Well, There's a lot of evidence that comes with that. If you're a paralyzed man and I say rise up and walk and you don't get up, then I don't have the power to heal you. So Jesus is saying it's a lot harder to say rise up and walk than it is your sins are forgiven you. But notice how he goes on to say, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately the paralyzed man rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. So the Pharisees, they ask a good question, who can forgive sins but God alone? But they weren't seeing the answer. The answer is Jesus is here. He's the one who's able to do it. So Jesus says, here, I'm going to help you understand something. I am going to heal this paralyzed man to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins. Because only God could heal this man, and only God can forgive sins. And so I'm not just going to say your sins are forgiven you. I'm going to heal him in your presence so that you know I have the power of God because I am God, and therefore I have the power to forgive this man's sin as well. You see, the reason that God came to this earth ultimately was to deal with our sin, to bring salvation. You know, John 3.16 is one of the most commonly quoted verses, but verse 17 right after is important as well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We often stop there, but verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That was the purpose. He came to save people. You know, each one of us here are sinners. And the Bible is very clear that our sin separates us from God. And that is why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to deal with our sin, to pay for our sin on the cross, to take the punishment our sins deserve. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead after He was killed to conquer sin, to conquer death. And the Bible tells us if we believe and accept what Jesus has done for us, if we ask Him to forgive us of our sins, if we ask Him to come into our life, that He will forgive us He will come into our life. He will save us from the punishment of our sin, which is hell. 
If you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, don't leave here without doing that. As we've seen, each person that's come to Jesus so far, they've had this encounter with Him, and He's drastically changed their life. But you know what? These are circumstances that aren't really salvation circumstances. The most important uh, circumstance that any of us face is the one where we have to come to Jesus. We have to accept what He's done on the cross for our sin, and He will transform your life. It will be the best decision you'll ever make. And for those of you who've already made that decision, I think, you know what? Here's a great example to us for friends who demonstrate what a godly friend's like. They're willing to have that desire, that dedication, that determination to bring their friend to the one who can meet any need, Jesus Christ. So Luke now, we've seen an encounter between Jesus and Peter. We've seen an encounter between Jesus and the leper. We've seen an encounter now with Jesus and the paralyzed man. And now we have our fourth and final person that Jesus is going to have an encounter with here in this chapter. Let's see who it is. Verse 27. After these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So Luke starts off by saying, after these things, he's referring to what just happened. After he just healed this paralyzed man, after the religious leader saying, who in the world does this? You know, you're speaking blasphemies because Jesus first says, you know, your sins are forgiven you. So after this whole thing transpires and these religious leaders don't believe that Jesus is God and there's already this problem going on, right when he leaves that home, he comes to this tax collector and he tells his tax collector to follow him. Now the Gospel of Mark tells us the same story and refers to this tax collector as Matthew Levi. This is Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew which is the greatest name to have. For those of you who don't know, that's my name. But, you know, growing up I always thought, hey, you know what, I'm named after a disciple, it's so great. And then I started studying the Bible and I realized that before Matthew becomes a disciple, he had another lifestyle. And I'm wondering, yeah, which one did my parents name me after? But let's see what his life was like before he's following Jesus. Because we often read about Matthew's response and we just go into, you know, oh wow, now he's a follower of Jesus. But we, we, we kind of brush over what he was. And I think it's important to note what he was because we're told that he was a tax collector. And it's important to understand that he's a tax collector because the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and really Jews as a whole hated the tax collectors of their time. You know, in our country, many people have strong negative feelings towards the IRS because they're our tax collectors. They take from us the money that we would rather keep in our own pocket. But I really feel that as you see the circumstances surrounding tax collectors at the time of Jesus, they have much better reason to hate the tax collectors of their day than we do with the tax collectors of our day. You see, Rome was in power over the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus, and Rome required a tax. And the people who collected those taxes were not Romans, they were Jews. Jews who were tax collectors. And these people who did this um, would come to the Roman officials and they would find out what was required by Rome. But the problem was only the Roman official and the tax collector knew what the taxes were each given time. And so what the tax collectors would do is they would find out, okay, you know, for an example, you know, it's $100 or whatever. Well, I'm going to charge them 150 and I'm going to pocket the other 50 because they don't know what it costs. Uh, and the Roman people, they didn't care. As long as we get our taxes, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and so, you know, this was a well-known thing that the tax collectors would be ripping off their own countrymen. 
But even worse than that, because they wanted to make a little more money, there was a common practice where they would come to the wealthy. The wealthy would bribe them, and so they wouldn't charge the wealthy the taxes that the wealthy had to do, and so they would charge the middle class and poor even more to make up the difference, uh, all just to pocket as much money as they could. And most tax collectors were very wealthy men, and they got their wealth by taking money from their own countrymen. Now, the Jews despised the fact that they were ruled by Rome. They despised the fact that they had to pay taxes to Rome. And even worse, a fellow Jew was taking that money and more away from you. So they had huge negative feelings towards tax collectors. Actually, many Jewish historians write that tax collectors were hated even more than Romans and Roman soldiers, which is saying a lot at that time. The Jewish scholar Alfred uh, Edersheim wrote that Jewish tax collectors were despised so much that they were barred from the synagogue. They couldn't have any religious connection with other Jews. That's how much they were hated. They basically said, you know what, you're like, uh, well, many things that the Jews (laughs) did not like. A good example of this is... Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Notice the example that Jesus uses here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do also? Notice Jesus could have just said, do not even sinners do the same? Because that was the point he was making. But he knew in that society, tax collectors were elevated to like, this is the worst sinner possible. And so Jesus uses that as an example in his teaching to kind of elevate, don't even the worst sinners do this? So what good is it if you do it? Uh, And so, you know, even in this, we kind of get an idea of what tax collectors were looked like at that time. And I think that's important to understand as we look at what happens here with Matthew, because here's a man who was despised. Here's a man who was an outcast in that society. Here's a man who really was barred from any type of religious uh, worship with fellow Jews. And, you know, he's up there in Capernaum. That's where he works. That's where Jesus is doing ministry. And he's probably one of the most hated men in Capernaum at that time. Matthew definitely would have been someone that the scribes and Pharisees, those religious leaders, would have wanted nothing to do with. He was a social outcast, and they would have made sure he was not coming in to their synagogue. Now try and picture this scene, because Jesus is at Capernaum. He just heals this man, but says, your sins are forgiven you. The religious leaders think, well, you're blaspheming, you're not God, how dare you say that? Jesus heals that man, people are like, whoa, this is crazy, but the religious leaders still don't buy in that Jesus is actually God, so they're quite upset with him, and you know, he leaves that house, and the first thing he does is come across one of the most despised men in society, the one that the religious leaders hate, and notice what he does when he sees this man, he comes up to him and says, follow me, come be my disciple, I mean, you want to add fuel to the fire that's already been lit with these religious leaders. All right, yeah, now you're going to come to a man that we despise and you're going to ask him to follow you. And this is what Jesus does. The man that the Pharisees would have avoided at all costs, Jesus comes and says, come and be my disciple. Come, follow me. I think by asking Matthew to follow him, Jesus shows that it's everyone that he's seeking to reach, not just the religious people, not just those who seem to have their life all together, Jesus was ready and willing to receive the outcasts of society. He's ready and willing to receive people that are despised. He's willing to receive wicked sinners. He's willing to receive people who the religious community had rejected. 
I'm sure the offer of Jesus to follow him that was given to Matthew was a surprise to the crowd and probably a very big surprise to Matthew himself. Here's a man that was always rejected from religious people. The scribes and Pharisees not allowing him into the synagogue. And so here's a man, are you sure you're talking to me? You know, do you recognize who I am? I'm sure Matthew was quite taken back by this wonderful offer to follow Jesus. But notice how Matthew responds to Jesus' offer to follow him. Verse 28, So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Matthew Levi does two important things here. First, we're told he leaves all to follow Jesus. Notice this is what we saw with Peter, James, and John as well. When Jesus calls him, we're told they left all to follow him. This is such an important thing for us because too often it's like, you know what, I'll leave a little to follow you, Jesus, and I'll keep a little for myself. And, you know, this is the way that Jesus wants us to respond. Matthew leaves this lifestyle of sin. He leaves this job where he was taking advantage of people, which was, you know, making him a lot of money, giving him a lot of comforts. He said, you know what, I'm willing to leave that aside to follow you, Jesus. He also made a choice to believe that Jesus really did want someone like him. Someone with his past failures, someone with his past sins. He was someone who had to recognize Jesus really truly does want to have me as his follower. Even though I've heard my whole life, I'm too horrible to go to the synagogue. Too horrible for God to ever love. He had to believe that Jesus really did want someone with him, his sin, to follow him. That Jesus really could accept him. That Jesus really could forgive him. You know, when Jesus calls us to follow him, I think the response of Matthew is what he's looking for. He wants us to be willing to leave all, but also willing to say, the one of the things I need to leave is this thought that my sin is too great for Jesus to forgive. My sin is too great for Jesus to uh, get over and deal with. Jesus wants us to believe that he can forgive anything we have done. That you're an outcast that if you're a horrible sinner, He wants and is able to forgive you. You know, I think there's a lie of the enemy who always wants us to believe that God can't forgive you. God doesn't want to forgive you. Look at what you did. Do you think God wants anything to do with you? Well, yes, He does. He loves you. He paid for your sin on the cross. He wants to have a relationship with you. You know, I think it's sad to see how many people aren't willing to follow Jesus because one, they're not willing to give up their sin. Matthew could have said, thanks for the offer, Jesus, but I'm making quite a good living with what I'm doing, and I know it's ripping people off, but hey, look at my house, look at my camels, look at all that I have, you know, I'm not willing to leave this. First and foremost, he's looking for someone who says, you know what, I'm willing to leave that. But sadly, there's a lot of people, it's not that they're not willing to give up their sin, it's the fact that they have so much sin that they're not willing to accept that Jesus could forgive them. Oh, that's a great offer, but I don't really believe it. I don't really think, you, don't, you must not know who you're offering it to, because if you saw my life, if you saw what I've done, then surely you wouldn't want me. Jim Elliott, a great missionary, said, He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. So Matthew's first response to Jesus was, Hey, I'll leave all to follow you. I'll accept that you can forgive me. But notice what his second response is that I love. He gives this great feast to Jesus, and notice who he invites. He invites all his tax collector friends, all these sinful outcasts of society. He brings them over to this feast with Jesus. So notice right after Matthew decides to follow Jesus, 
The next thing he does is bring all his sinful friends to Jesus. And again, I think this is the kind of response God wants from us. Once we accept Jesus personally, he wants us then, hey, share me with those that you know, which are most likely going to be all sinful people just like you were, living that lifestyle just like you were, the people that you hung out with. Now, let's bring those people to Jesus. Let's share what Jesus has done for us with them. So Matthew not only chooses to follow Jesus, but he also has this great feast in his house for Jesus, full of these sinners. And I think it's interesting, you see this house full of outcasts, full of sinners, full of those rejected by society, full of those rejected by the religious community at that time. And in the midst of all of that is Jesus. And so often we don't think Jesus would have been in that house. The way in which a lot of people portray Jesus today, you would think that'd be the last house that Jesus was in. But we need to recognize that's the kind of house that Jesus would go to. The place where there are people who are in desperate need of Him. Well, the religious leaders, they would have never gone to that house. And when they find out that Jesus is in that house, they got some issues with it. Notice what they say, verse 30. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus' disciples and they say, You know what? Why do you eat and drink with these horrible sinners? Why would you even go into their house? Why would you go and have a meal with them? Because these guys wouldn't do it. These religious leaders stayed clear of those guys. And notice Jesus' response to them. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, they wanted nothing to do with the sinful people that Jesus was there for, but that's exactly why He came. Jesus came for sinners. He came to call them to repent of their sin. Jesus is the ultimate physician who has come to call people who are spiritually sick to Himself. Jesus pointed out that only sick people need doctors. People like Matthew and his friends. They're spiritually sick. They're horrible sinners. And you know what? I am that person who has come to deal with their sin. I came for the spiritually sick. I came for those who want to be healed. For the spiritually corrupt who want to be cleansed. For the spiritually poor who want to be rich. For the spiritually hungry who want to be fed. For the spiritually dead who want to be made alive. Those are the people that I've come for. Those are the people that I want to take from the darkness they're living in and bring them into the light that I bring. But something important for us to understand is Jesus can only forgive those that recognize their sin and come to Him and ask for forgiveness. See, the problem is the Pharisees and the scribes, they thought they were so godly. They thought they had it all together. As we look through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find that they're just as much sinners as Matthew was, but they didn't see that. They didn't recognize that. They thought, you know what? We're religious. We're going to get to God based on our good works. We have a good relationship with God. They missed this reality that they were in desperate need of Jesus, just like Matthew and his friends were. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Matthew and his friends because they had this mindset that, you know what? We're better than you. We're the ones who are these godly people and you're this, the wretched sinner. But the reality was, they were all sinners. They could see how sinful Matthew and his friends were, but they didn't see their own sinfulness. They didn't recognize their own need. They didn't recognize how hypocritical they were. And that's one of the things that they get really upset about with Jesus because he keeps pointing it out through the rest of the Gospel of Luke and showing them their own sin that they don't want to recognize and accept. 
You know, as believers in Christ, I think we need to be very careful not to be like the scribes and Pharisees that we see here. Not to think that we're so much better than the sinful world around us, but to remember that we're sinners just like them. The really big difference is we have been forgiven because we have come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and we have accepted it. And that is the difference. Not that we're so much better than them, but that God is so good and that we have accepted His grace and His love for us. And that's the main thing that's changed. And the reason that's so important is because too often as Christians, we're like Pharisees and you know we just... I can't be around that person. I can never hang out with that person. I can never love that person. Look at that reject in society. Look at that horrible, sinful person. And, and we don't treat them the way that we should. You know, we use that term oftentimes in Christianity. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would be hanging out with them. Jesus would be there loving on them. Jesus would be showing himself to them. Jesus would be revealing, hey, I came to die for your sin. I want you to come to know who I am. I get so ch- saddened by churches that Act like Pharisees. I grew up in one. And they won't let you come until you sort yourself out. When you get off drugs, come to our church. When you stop dressing like you know, this or that, come to our church. You know, when you stop drinking and partying, come to our church. When you stop sleeping around, come to our church. When you get your life all sorted out, then you can come. That was the kind of church I grew up in. You know, someone came in, they didn't have their suit and tie. You can go right back out the door. You come, and you come the way that we want you to, and then we'll allow you in. But it's just so foolish and so anti what the Bible says, because how are these people ever going to change? There's only one person who's going to change you, and it's Jesus. The church has the message of what Jesus has done. We should say, come as you are. We'll tell you about the one who can change you, and we'll allow him to do that work in your life. It's not our responsibility, it's his. We'll tell you Jesus is the one who's died on the cross for your sin. If you accept him, he can deal with your drug addiction, he can deal with your partying, he can deal with you know, the relationships you're in, he can deal with all of that. Please come, because we want to share him with you. But sadly, too often in the church world, we become the Pharisees, and we say, hey, go sort your life out somewhere else, and then you can come here. And that's totally against the heart of God and totally against what we see Jesus doing as he was here on this earth. So in this chapter, Jesus encounters four different people in different situations with different needs. But the interesting thing is each one of these four people choose to trust Jesus with the circumstances that they faced. They choose to say, Jesus, I willingly accept your help. I willingly want you to minister to me here. And he touches each one of them, transforms each one of them changes their life. All of us have needs that only Jesus can meet. And our greatest need is that sin that separates us from God, the one that He sent His Son to pay for on the cross. And we're going to close this morning. We're going to be doing this now the first Sunday of every month. And we're going to take communion together. It's a time just to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we think of the sin that we've done, you know what, that is what has separated us from God. And it's what Jesus did on the cross that has now enabled us to have a relationship with Him. Can the worship team come back up? I'm going to read a a passage real quickly about communion. Uh, Then we're going to pass out the communion elements. Uh, And I'm just going to ask you to hold on to those together because I want us to take it all together. Uh, And this is an open communion, meaning it's open to any one of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then we encourage you to take it. Uh, If you have yet to do that, if you have yet to accept Christ, then just allow the elements to pass by. Uh, This is not something for you to take. But um, I'm just going to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion. 
Uh, and then um, we're going to have the worship team lead us in a song uh, and just hold on to those elements. It says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You know, and the next thing that Paul talks to us about, he says, you know what? Examine yourself before doing this. And as the, the worship team is just leading us in song, I encourage you just to take some time to be quiet for the Lord. Examine yourself. If there is sin in your life that you haven't confessed to Jesus, do that now. As we're taking time to remember His sacrifice for us, what He's done for us, let's come having shared our sin and confessed our sin and asked for forgiveness of it. And so let's just take a moment. We're going to sing a little bit, and then I'll come back up, and we'll take um, communion together.